Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, we are drawing to the end of chapter 12, the end of this particular discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13 will take us into the teachings of Christ through parables. In 2005, many of you remember well, most everyone in here probably remembers well or has seen pictures of the devastation of Hurricane Katrina came through and just wreaked havoc and destruction on the, the states of the Gulf Coast. And many of us went down there, many in, in the room here went down to help, and particularly when we went to Pascagoula to help and, and went down there. And I'll, I'll never forget the first trip we went down there and just driving through and seeing the destruction of the homes and, and hearing story after story of homeowners and all they had gone through, what they experienced, the, just the devastation and the loss. One of the things I was reminded of this week was just the news that, that some received as they came back to their homes, they saw the utter destruction, as they saw the destruction, they went back in and started to, to pick up and started to clean their homes and, and do what they could to, to bring it back to some sense of normalcy, only to have an official come to their home while they're cleaning and say, it's no use. Your home has to be destroyed. Your home's going to be bulldozed. doesn't matter how much you clean, how much you disinfect, how much you cut away. You may rebuild it and it may look nice for a time, but ultimately down the road, it's going to look worse because it will rot and it will mold and it will be destroyed ultimately down the road worse than it is now. It was a, a scene of terrible news as new homes were needed, no matter how much they were cleaned. Well, I was reminded of that this week because just thinking about the reality that humanity faces a similar situation. A similar situation in that as Hurricane Katrina decimated homes, left them unable to be repaired, sin has decimated our lives and our hearts and left us unable to be repaired on our own. There's nothing we can do. I can't clean my heart up enough on my own, and you can't either. Only Jesus Christ can do that. We are in need of new hearts, new lives that only come through God. There's no amount of cleaning I can do. It happens only when He comes into our lives. He takes possession of our lives. He enters our lives. And gives us new hearts, new lives. We need God to do that. Let's look at the word of the Lord this morning. Matthew chapter 12, we will read two accounts, two dialogues here that Jesus interacts with in, in concluding the discourse, beginning in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." 
while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who stood or who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. We come to this text and we see Jesus in verse 43 to 45 picking up on the the issue, the topic of spiritual warfare, and it draws back contextually to verses 22 to 32 where we saw the unclean spirit removed from the person, the, the mute. We come here and we don't see this as def- necessarily a definition or a lesson on demonology per se. It's an illustration that Jesus gives. As he gives this illustration, he does so and he doesn't give a lot of details. He doesn't clarify why it is or how it is that the Spirit is removed. But we know that contextually, in light of the fact that the Spirit was removed, it was exercised, it was cast out earlier by Christ, we now come and he gives an illustration about what happens when an evil spirit is removed. And again, he doesn't give a lot of details to this. We just simply know that it has no place to rest, right, after, and it returns to his house. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, the primary point of this passage that we're going to look at is that the, is the state of the house that he's talking about. That's the primary point of the passage. However, we look at this text, it does bring up an important question that I think we need to ask, we need to deal with this morning. And the question is this, is can a believer be demon-possessed? Can a believer be demon-possessed? Again, this is not the primary focus of this illustration But it is a question that comes about because a demon has left this person and then comes back. And according to the illustration, Jesus says not only did he come back, but he comes back and he brings more demons, more evil spirits with him. And so we have to ask that question as we look and go, is he talking about, like, is this possible in the life of a believer? And so what I want to do as we begin is I just want to give you a very brief uh, biblical view, biblical theology of demons and spiritual warfare. This, this is not going to answer every question because we don't have time to that. It would take a lot more time than we have. But I want to just give you seven points on a biblical theology of demons and spiritual warfare as a backdrop so we understand the answer to that question. And then we'll work our way through the passage and look at what it's primarily dealing with. So the first point would be this. In a biblical theology of demons and spiritual warfare is, number one, Satan and demons do exist. They do exist from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, we read of the presence and the activity of Satan and other demons. However, we are not led, when we read these texts, we're not, we're not led in any way to think that these are symbolic references, that they're just uh, kind of stories, that they're fictional. Scripture speaks of real demons, of real angels, and a real Satan, right? Demons and Satan are simply fallen and rebellious angels. So they do indeed exist. Number two, Satan and the demons are created beings and do not stand equal to God. You remember Job, right? Job comes in all of the afflictions that he, or not Job, but Satan comes in all the afflictions that he comes and brings upon Job, 
right, or under the authority of God. He gains permission. Actually, God even suggests Job to Satan, right? Satan is functioning under the authority of God. Satan was created. He was a fallen angel. He's created as an angel, and he fell from his perfect state as an angel as he was created. Revelation tells of his ultimate defeat. Now, what we understand, we understand the fact that they are created. It means what? It means they're limited, right? That create the angel, or sorry, demons and Satan are limited. They, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent, right? Satan and demons are limited in presence. They're limited in power. They're limited in knowledge, in all those things. So we don't live as though we can't get away from them. We don't live in constant fear as though they're everywhere, that Satan can be in all places at all times. He can't. He's limited. He is a created being, okay? In Matthew 8, we understand that as a created being, he's not equal to God. In Matthew 8, what, is, what did we study? The Gerasene de- demoniac. And in that moment, what is, the, what is the demoniac? He calls himself legion. What does he do? He begs Jesus to be merciful to him, to not cast him away, to cast him into the pigs. And so then what does Jesus do? Jesus commands and it happens. Jesus shows authority. Later in Matthew 17, we'll read of an account where Jesus rebukes an unclean spirit in a boy. You can only rebuke that which you have authority over. So Satan and demons are created beings. They are not equal with God. We don't have a kind of one-on-one equal battle between evil and good, between Satan and God. That's not what it is, okay? God is sovereign. He rules over all, and he alone is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, okay? The third thing we need to understand is that spiritual warfare is real. It's real, Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare is real. We need to understand that. We would be foolish to pretend that it is not real just because we live in a modern technological age. It's not as though Satan and demons and spiritual warfare is all of a sudden going, oh, well, that's the United States. We're just going to stay away from there. And so we don't have to worry about spiritual warfare here. No, spiritual warfare is real. We need to understand that. Ephesians, that passage in Ephesians is the, where he makes that statement. Many of you may re- recall that just after making that statement is where Paul instructs us to put on the full armor of God. Why? That we might stand against the schemes of the enemy. Fourth thing we need to know is that the believer need not fear Satan, demons, spiritual warfare. The believer, the follower of Christ, the Christian, should not live in fear of these things. Why? Well, 1 John 4, 4 reminds us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We read passages like John 14, 15 to 17, Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. They all teach us the reality that the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. That's an important thing to remember. If the Holy Spirit dwells within us, there is no need for us to fear. The Spirit dwells within us. We do not need to fear Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare. We don't need to be ignorant of it, but we don't need to fear it. Number five, not every illness, affliction, 
tragedy and so on as a result of Satan's work. We don't find a demon under every rock that we turn over. Every instance of difficulty in our lives is not necessarily spiritual in nature. We've seen that. We've talked about it. We've commented on it in Matthew that we come and we see some places where Jesus confronts a situation and he sees a spiritual cause to that. He casts out a demon, the man who is mute, right? But we see other instances where he simply heals them. It's just a purely physical ailment. He brings healing upon them. And so there are some times where it is a spiritual cause, sometimes it's not. What we do know is that our own flesh and sin are often to blame. We need to keep that in mind, that we often are kind of reaping the results of our own decisions, our own life, our own sin. In general, fallenness of man and sin in general causes much of the trials and difficulties we see. We also have to keep in mind that God's sovereign will is always in effect. That God is a sovereign God who's working out his purposes. And there are times in my life and in your life where those purposes include difficult days and trials that he takes us through to refine us and to shape us and to conform us into the likeness of Christ. We read instances like John 9, the man born blind, and the disciples ask, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It's so that God might be glorified. We think about the story of Joseph, the instance that everything that goes through in Joseph's life is the sins of his brothers that brought about the affliction. It's the sins of his brothers, but God used those things for good. So not every illness, affliction, tragedy is a result of Satan's work or spiritual warfare. It could be, but it's not necessarily. Number six, Scripture has numerous accounts of unbelievers under demonic influence. As we go through the Gospels and read into Acts, we see numerous accounts of an unbeliever who is what you might say or describe as demon-possessed or demonized or under the control and influence of a demon. The illustration that Jesus gives now is expressing that same idea when he talks about the demon coming in to what he describes as my house. This is my house, right? And so there are instances of that, and there's no indication in scriptures that this has ended or will end before Christ returns, okay? The final thing then that we bring before you today and we think about just this brief overview is this, is that a Christian can experience demonic attack and spiritual warfare, but cannot be possessed or owned or controlled by a demon, Okay, so it is possible that we would experience spiritual warfare. We said earlier, what did we say? Spiritual warfare does indeed exist. It is there. We're told to stand firm, to put on the full armor of God. But we also know in light of that, what, that the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. Right? There's freedom. We're not controlled. We're never held under the control of Satan. This is why James says something important. Do you remember, some of you may remember James 4, 4, uh, 4 verse 7, where he says this, he makes a simple instruction, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The believer has the capability to resist any type of spiritual warfare. Just resist it. He says resist the devil. If, the, if Satan comes and, and afflicts you or comes at you, attacks you, you experience spiritual warfare, James just says resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not as though you're under control of him and you can't 
be released, that you can, you're held in bondage and you need to be delivered from that. No, Christ has delivered you. Christ indwells you. So the Christian does experience spiritual warfare and attack. That's why Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he described his thorn in the flesh as what? A messenger from Satan. The messenger from Satan. In Ephesians 6, 12, we talked about that. It reminds us that we do indeed battle evil spiritual forces. In 1 Peter, you remember 1 Peter, when Peter writes to believers, what does he say in 1 Peter 5, verse 8? He describes Satan as a lion, right, who's roaring, walking around roaring. He's seeking to intimidate, to strike fear, and he's seeking for one to devour. And so we would understand then that we do experience spiritual warfare. We do experience spiritual attack. However, this is the difference that we need to know. You're here, you're a Christian, you're a believer. The Christian can be demon-oppressed or attacked or afflicted, but cannot be demon-possessed, as in ownership, controlled. Christ controls us. We have been bought by price. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we are owned by God. Your body, this is what Paul writes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Okay? So just kind of a, a general overview, and we think about that because it does inform how we think about this illustration that Christ gives. Now, would that be in a backdrop of how we understand and, and think about and understand a biblical theology and, and understanding of demons and spiritual warfare, Satan? Let's look at this text in verse 43 to 45. What we have here is a warning of the danger of a reformation of your life void of Jesus Christ. What this text is is a warning to us today. And it's a warning that I would beg everyone in here to take heed of. Is this a warning of one who would reform his life or her life while not being changed by Jesus Christ? So he speaks these words. Just think about contextually the people that Jesus speaks these words to. He's speaking these words to those who have seen mighty works of God. And they've heard all of the teachings. They've heard what Jesus has taught. They've seen His ministry. They even, they even heard the preaching and declaration the, and saw the life of John the Baptist as he comes and he pronounces, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They heard Jesus, the good news, the gospel, preach the good news, the gospel. They, they, they heard that. They heard Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7 deliver the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the things they had seen. They saw that lepers were cleansed. They saw the sick healed, blind given sight, Jesus, uh, uh, the lame made to walk, storms calmed, and dead raised to life. They had seen this. They had viewed testimony. They heard about it. Their friends came and said, you're not going to believe what I saw. And they came out. They knew what Jesus was doing. They heard his teaching. They heard Jesus speak of the cost of following him in chapter 8, verse 18 to 22. They, they heard him teach of the need for genuine repentance in chapter 11, 20 to 24. They heard him teach and preach in, in 12, 15 to 21, our present chapter, that he was the chosen servant of the Lord. They heard this. They knew it. They saw it. They even 
experienced it. They were eyewitnesses, and some of them were more than eyewitnesses. They were the ones that it occurred to. It happened in their lives. And so here at the close of this discourse, Jesus gives a warning. And the warning essentially is this, beware of seeing and hearing and experiencing and even even agreeing with all the Lord has done and taught. All the while, you're not a disciple of Christ. Beware of that. Beware. This warning is so relevant today. It's so relevant for us as we gather today to know and understand and hear the warning that it is possible to come to church to agree with everything that's taught, to even experience moments of wonderful worship, to see God do mighty things in the lives of people sitting in this congregation that you would look and go, wow, I can't believe God did that in his life or that in their life. To see all of those things. It's possible to do that, to see that, to hear that and never be converted. It's possible to sit in week in and week out. Clean up your life. Try to live a good, nice life and not be a converted follower of Jesus Christ with the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You need to know and you need to hear these verses today. And I would beg of you, all of us in here, take these verses seriously. The point of this passage that I said earlier has to do with the state of the house, the condition of the house. And there's, there, the house here refers to the person or the heart. Right? We read that in verse 43 to 45. We, we understand that the unclean spirit goes out of a person. Right, It passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. So the person is a description of the house or the heart. The heart, the house, the person, synonyms. They mean the same things here. There's two expressions here that inform our understanding of what we're talking about that help us to understand what's going on. The first one is my house. There's ownership there expressed, right? It's possessive. He possesses the house. It's his, right, the demon says. The second thing is the fact that it remains empty, right? So when you look at uh, verse 44, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. When he comes, he finds the house empty, swept, and put in order, right? So he left, left it empty. He comes back, and it's still empty. It looks cleaner. It looks nicer, but it's empty, And so he says, I will return to my house. How does he know it's his house? Because it's still empty. Nothing's changed. He needs, the person needs a new house. The demon leaves the person. He notices not only is it empty, but it's cleaned and put in order, right? It's swept, looks nice. Maybe, I don't know, what does that mean? He's cleaned it. Perhaps he's decided to clean up his life morally. So I'm going I'm to be a better person. I'm going to turn over a new leaf in my life. I think that's the right thing to do. Or, or maybe, maybe the person has come to just value religion and the moral teachings of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of wisdom there, maybe. There's a, I think there's some wisdom I can glean from, from this. 
Religion's valuable. May, you know, maybe I'm even going to start coming to church so that my kids grow up around the church. They can be good kids and learn good things. Be moralistic little kids. I would like them to have good morals. Maybe that's how they cleaned it up. Or perhaps he cleaned it up because he experienced this act of healing. It was the man in, earlier in the chapter. He experienced this act of healing and he's rethought his life. I'm going to put things in order now. Or maybe, maybe the individual has heard the teachings. He's learned some really good theology. And says, wow, that's some impressive theology. That makes sense. I'm going I'm to start just trying to obey. I'm going to start living different. Well, what's the problem in all this? The, the problem is that while the house is empty and swept and put in order, it's still the same old house that's empty. It's still the same old empty house. Other than some tidying up, nothing's changed. The person's life has not been changed by God, so the evil spirit still looks and calls it my house. It's empty. It's clean. looks nice. There's been no change. You see, we need a new home. We need a new home that's not empty, that's possessed. We need a new home that is given by and owned by God. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, that, that we as believers, we've been bought with a price and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The believer is not an empty house. The believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I can guarantee you that if the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and possesses the believer, has bought him with a price, there is no demon or angel or, or fallen angel or Satan that's going to come and then dwell in and control the believer. It doesn't even make sense. Do you really think the omnipotent, all-powerful God says, I dwell within you, and oh, you can be controlled by a believer. I mean, by, by, a, by a demon. No. No. We need, we need those, that fundamental life change, that fundamental heart change that only comes through a work of God. It doesn't come through tidying up my life. It doesn't come through making things clean. It doesn't come through me becoming more moral. It comes through me turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Listen, a, a half-hearted reformation of your life is dangerous. It's dangerous. If you come today and you've emptied your life of shameful vices of the past, if you've swept away the bad habits of your early years, if you put things in order to kind of meet this perceived standard of people around you, of the church-going folk, yet you are unconverted. You've never come to know Christ. Your life has never been changed. He's never made your dead heart new and alive in Him. Then your reformation of your life is insufficient and temporary. It will not last. It will not last. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Temporary reformation is well pictured. 
The devil has no objection to his house being swept and garnished. For a moralist may be as truly his slave as the man of debauched habits. So long as the heart is not occupied by his great foe, and he can use the man for his own purposes, the adversary of souls will let him reform as much as he pleases. What Spurgeon's noting is the wisdom of saying, hey, Satan doesn't really care how moralistic you are. You can go be as moralistic as you want to be. You can clean your life up all you want. And he's okay with that. Because if you're not converted, it means in the end, you're going to be in hell with him. You're going to still be a child of God's wrath. You're not an adopted child of the king. He's okay with that. Lasting reformation only comes through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. You have to know that today. Repentance without genuine heart change is always, always, always temporary. It's always temporary. If you want a case study of this, just go back this afternoon and read the book of Judges. Over and over, you see that. You see this, this insincere repentance. The people repent because of some situation in their life, and they cry out to God, Oh, come save us, come save us. We've been awful, we've been terrible. We did this, we rebelled, and they're afflicting us. The people are coming upon us. Come save us, oh God. And God hears, He sends a judge, He saves them all, and they're so thankful, it's wonderful. And it's temporary. The next thing you know, they're doing the same exact thing. Why? Because it's not genuine heart repentance. It's not genuine life change. We need to know that. We need to be warned today of that. We need to know that the genuine believer is the person who has been made new in Christ, who has been given a new heart. We need to know the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's new life. Well, how does that happen? How does that occur? What, what, what happens to accomplish that? If you're here today, you're, you're an unbeliever, and you go, okay, I realize, like, I've tried to do a lot of religious things. I've tried to clean up my life. I've, I've done all of those things. I've seen it, and I try to just be a good person. But what you're saying is kind of, kind of, kind of crazy, like I hadn't thought of it, I hadn't realized that. I'm hearing this warning from the Lord. So what do I do? How, how, how am I given new life? How is the old gone and the new come? What happens to bring that about? Just hear this this morning. Believers, hear this, and in your heart of hearts, hallelujah, what a Savior, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does it happen? Just here, this is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Paul said, you were dead. You were made alive. By God's grace, through faith, not of works. How are you made new? You're made new by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. He alone, He alone can change your heart and give you a new heart, or a new house, so to speak. And in that moment, you as a believer are indwelt in the Spirit of God. How does it happen? It happens by God's grace. And it happens through faith in Christ. So today, the message for you, if you say, man, that was me, I've heard the warning, is turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith. Don't play religious games. Don't see all the things around you don't hear all the teachings, don't experience these great moments, and live without Christ. Why? Well, look at verse 45. The reason is that if you do that, your condition is going to worsen. It's going to be worse for you in the end than it is now. He says in verse 45, the last state of that person is worse than the first. Again, Spurgeon is insightful here. He says, Reformations which are not the work of conquering grace are usually temporary and often lead to a worse condition after years. Don't be this person that Jesus gives us an illustration for. Don't be the one who tidies up his life and cleans it up, but is never converted. Never confesses Christ. I, I would make this appeal to you, as I think there's a very real sense that there would be some who would say, I've gone to church all my life. People think I'm a believer. What would people say? I'd answer that in two ways. One, who cares? I mean, really. I would be more concerned about the state of your soul than I would be what people might say. The second way I would answer is this. Believers in Christ would proclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. We would rejoice with you, we would come alongside you and celebrate God's good work in your life. <laughs> we wouldn't look at you and go, man, <laughs> really? Golly, what a loser. We wouldn't ridicule you. No, we would rejoice and we would celebrate with you.
Because what had been lost will be found. And there will be great cause for rejoicing here and in heaven. So let us rejoice with you if that's you today. Don't be in a situation where it is true that where you find yourself is even worse than where you were before. Don't, don't be like the, the false prophets that Peter writes about in Second Peter. He describes the false prophets and he describes the same situation as Jesus does here in, in chapter 12, verses 45. He, he says that they, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Sound familiar? Why? For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true Proverbs says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's just worse. These false prophets knew. They knew the teachings. They knew theology. They knew the gospel. They weren't converted. They were false. He says, man, it would have been better just to not even know. Why? Because a dog just returns his vomit. A sow, a pig, returns right to the mud. The only thing that's going to change is you need to be made new. You need to be made new by Christ. J.C. Ryle says this. He said, let us never be content with a partial reformation of life without thorough conversion to God and mortification of the whole body of sin. It's a good thing to strive to cast sin out of our hearts, but let us take care that we also receive the grace of God in its place. Don't just sweep your house. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Allow Him to give you a new house under new ownership. That's filled by the Holy Spirit. Repentance without genuine heart change is always going to be temporary, friends. Always going to be temporary. Verse 46 to 50. The second kind of dialogue he gives us here is just a reminder that we'll close with today. It's a reminder for believers to remind you that we have a special, intimate relationship with Jesus. Matthew doesn't really give any details why Jesus' family comes about. We don't know why they popped in the scene, what's going on, what it is that caused them to come and, and be in the crowd. Mark three twenty one actually tells us that, that they came. We don't know if it's the same exact incident. We do know at one point Jesus' family comes because they're concerned that he is, he's lost his mind, he's out of his mind, it says. But we don't know if it's the same exact incident. What we do know and what we need to understand this morning is that the incident of his family being in the crowd gives an opportunity for Jesus to drive home a beautiful and encouraging point about the depth of relationship between him and his followers. Verse 49 reminds us that this is about his followers. It says he stretches out his hand towards his disciples. So what he says is about those who are following him in faith. They've committed their life to him. 
And what does he say? What does he say? He says, my disciples are who? They are my true family. They're my family. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of metaphors, multiple metaphors in Scripture that describe us as God's people. We hear about the, the bride of Christ, and when we're called the bride of Christ, it's to help show us of the love and the covenant commitment that Christ has to us. We're called the temple of God, and the temple of God reminds us and teaches us that, of His presence in our lives and the fact that we are to be set apart for Him. We're called the body of Christ, reminding us of our unique giftedness and the importance of functioning together as we all are important and functioning well in unity. Oh, but this one, this metaphor is not just a metaphor. It is a metaphor that expresses the reality that we are adopted sons and daughters through faith in Christ, that God has made us his own that he has adopted us as children of God. John 1.12 says, But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Galatians 4, 4-7, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that. What is the purpose? What's the reason? Why did he redeem us? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And what's the result? Because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Hello, rings back to verse 43 to 45, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, you are an heir through God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We are the family of God. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King who reigns supreme. That's who we are. And Jesus, in this instance, he reminds it and he says, listen, my disciples here are my mother and my brothers right there. My disciples, those who follow me, they are my family. And what does he say in verse 50? He says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my sister, my brother, my mother. He is, not will be. That's an important distinction. He doesn't say whoever obeys will be, right? He says whoever obeys is, right? The disciple is characterized by what in the New Testament? What do we see? The disciple is characterized by one who walks in obedience to the Lord. The disciple is not one that just gathers and has kind of gathered and come on a Sunday morning at 10.30 to see the circus. We're not one that just comes to get the kind of the fuzzy feelings of being among people singing and hearing great music and, and all of these things. No, the disciple is the one who has submitted his life to Christ as Lord and has turned his life over to him and is following him faithfully, striving for personal holiness and to walk in obedience to Christ. The true disciples are those who walk in obedience to him. Obeying God, doing God's will does not make us a part of the family of God, but it does reveal if we are. Okay? It doesn't make us. That's why it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven will become or will be my brother and sister and father or mother. He says, you are. Whoever does it is. That's who you are. Why? Because it characterizes the believer. The believer is characterized by obedience. And so today as we close out Matthew 12, we close out this discourse today, the question that we have to 
to ask is, am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? The question is not, am I religious? The question is not, am I morally good? The question is not, do I have good ethics? The question is, am I a follower of Christ? Have I been converted? Have I turned from my sin and trusted Jesus Christ? Has he changed my heart? Do I have new affections for him? Those of you in the Jonathan Edwards class, do I have affections for Christ? Do I have longings for Him? Do I have longings for His Word? Do I have longings to obey? Do I have deep and strong longings and desires to worship Him? Do I see the holy things of the Lord and just go, that is beautiful. It's beautiful. Or I just have some head knowledge. I just have some habits. I just kind of do it because I'm supposed to do it. I just kind of do it because this is my position. I just do it because that's what people expect me to do. I just kind of do it. But look how clean my house is. <laughs> I mean, it's swept. It's well kept. The furniture is in order. It doesn't make a hill of beans a difference if it's the same old house that's empty. Have you been converted? Have you trusted Christ? Or are you just putting on a good show? Don't play the game of cleaning house. Don't fall prey to a partial reformation that is insufficient and temporary and that will leave you in the end in a worse state than you are now. Let's pray. Father, most of us bow in here today thankful and rejoicing in the reality that we bow as sons and daughters who rightly begin prayers by saying, Father, and so God, we pray in praise and thanksgiving to you today for what you've done in adopting us. And God, for, for us, I pray that we would find that as a deeply encouraging truth today. That we would be reminded that through the ups and downs, the trials, the difficulties of life, God, we're yours. And God, as such, would you please strengthen us by your grace to walk in obedience to you out of our love for you and because of your salvation in our lives. And God, I pray for those in here who, God, they would be characterized by verses 43 to 45. They would be those who have cleaned up a lot. They've may look very religious, may lead moralistic lives, may give the right ethical answers. 
and take the right stands. But God, they've never trusted Jesus Christ in faith. And please, please don't let them leave this day in that state. God, I pray that you would do a great work in their lives. They would surrender their lives to you in faith. Trust Jesus Christ today. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for making salvation possible for us that we might live eternally with you. Thank you for redeeming us so that our faith and our hope is in you, the almighty, eternal, holy, perfect, righteous, never-ceasing, unending God. We worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.